Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 17. Uh, Just a little bit of the story up to this point in Exodus. Uh, The Israelites have just escaped from Egypt uh, by the grace of God, and it hasn't been long now that since they've been out of Egypt that they, in chapter 16, are complaining about not having uh, food to eat, and God provides that. And now here in chapter 17, they're going to start complaining about not having water. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out, up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Our epistle reading is from Romans chapter 5. It starts out with therefore, so just a little information on chapter 4. Uh, Paul has just made the argument that we are saved by faith rather than by works. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the fourth chapter. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water 
will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Uh, the epistle reading that Joe read a minute ago from Romans chapter 5, that's the, uh, that's the text that the teaching this morning is based upon. Uh, Romans 5 through 8 is an incredibly rich section of Christian teaching. There's just a ton in there. And at some point in the future, we're going to have to, uh, together uh, here on Sunday mornings, work through Romans 5 through 8 together. Uh, the section that we read this morning, the first five verses, actually it, going down a little bit farther actually even, uh, functions as a kind of a table of contents for what happens next in Romans 5 through 8. And so uh, you're going to get just a little smattering of some big picture themes uh, fr- fr- um, from the next four chapters in Romans, which we're not going to talk about a lot this morning. And I'm going to try to make this as quick as possible. But um, one, uh, one of the ways that Paul gets at that at the beginning of Romans 5 is uh, by telling a little bit about uh, the past reality of the Christian, that there's something about your past that makes sense of your now. There's something happening right now to, to you that Paul describes, and then there's something that's going to happen in the future to you that Paul describes in here. There's a past, present, and future thing. That has to do with your own individual lives and, and the life of St. James as a church. Too. So do you mind if I read Romans 5, 1 through 5? Again, I'm just going to read Romans, uh, I'm just going to read the first five verses. Paul says, and this is in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Okay, check this out. Here's the past. Here's your past reality. Verse 1, since we have been, this is past tense, those who believe in Jesus have been justified by faith. We talked about this just a second ago when Kara was baptized. Through faith in Jesus, because of faith in Jesus, God looks at you and says, you and I are right. I declare you not guilty. There's nothing, there's nothing that separates me and you. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. This is what separates Christianity from every other philosophy and way of life. 
is that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything to be on the end with the guy who's in charge. Just simply believe in him. And you're justified by faith. That's, if you're a Christian, for those of you who are Christians, that's your past. That's what makes sense of who you are now. There's also a present reality too. Look at verse two. And there's, uh, I'm sorry, last line of verse one. There's two things here. First of all, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you, would you believe that that's revolutionary? When Paul first said that, that was literally, I mean, literally revolutionary. That's actually the kind of thing that you could get in trouble with the Roman government for. The Pax Romana, this is what Caesar offered uh, Roman citizens, is that I know that you're basically my slaves, but I've given you, for the first time in world history, I'm allowing you guys to live in perpetual peace. My empire is so big that you cannot be touched by the enemies. And his titles, uh, Soter, he was called Savior. Curios, uh, 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 he was called Lord. So, uh, this is what Caesar offers his citizens. As I, as your Savior and Lord, can offer you the Pax Romana. So when Paul borrows this language and says, because of Jesus, we have the Pax with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, claiming that there's some alternate king to King Caesar, that's the kind of thing that's going to get, eventually he's going to get Paul's head cut off in Rome in the 40s. Right, so this is, uh, this is revolu- in the 50s, I apologize. This is revolutionary. And I think that later we'll talk about this, not this morning, but later we're going to come back to this. What Paul means by it is several things. One is that we have horizontal peace. Because what God has given to us, we have peace with the world. We have, beef, we have a beef with no one. We also have peace with God. We also have a, a, a relationship with God that there's nothing, this is, goes along with justification, there's nothing that, there's no strife between us and God because of what Jesus did. That's the first part of our present reality. Second part, verse 2. Through Jesus, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, grace is pictured as a building or a temple here. You can't get into that temple unless you're on the end. But because of what God did for us in Jesus Christ, you have access to this building. This building named grace. Where God not only forgives you, but God also heals you cures you of your sin, promises you future glory. We have access into this room. This is our present. This is what life is like for us now, presently as Christians. Third thing, though, is our future hope. He's also going to deal with our future. Uh, look at verse 3. Not only that, I'm sorry, last line of verse 2. I keep on jumping ahead here. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What does that line mean? What does he mean when he says we rejoice? I think we all know what, what rejoice means, basically. What does the hope of the glory of God mean? A couple of things here. For Paul, in Romans 5-8, through 8, the glory of God is shorthand for the future glory. It's shorthand for this. God promises to someday fix the entire world. To get rid of sin, to get rid of brokenness, to get rid of sicknesses and diseases, to get rid of relationship problems, to create a new creation where new life and justice and love is the coin of the realm. Paul's shorthand for that is the glory of God. Let me give you an example from uh, Romans 8, just a few chapters over. Here's what he says in Romans 8, 18. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory 
That's to be revealed in us. You see what he's saying? He's saying, here's the present time, life of sufferings and struggles. But there's a glory of the future time that makes, when we get to that glory in the future, we'll look back at the sufferings and we'll think, this is not, they don't even compare. The, the power and the majesty of that glory will make the sufferings that we go through now, which seem so big, seem little to us. Let me read a few more verses in there. Because the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So, so pay attention to what he's saying here. For the creation, and now he's not talking about me and you experiencing the glory of God someday. He's talking about the whole creation experiencing the glory of God when Jesus returns someday. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it when Adam sinned. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation itself, Paul personifies it. Or is that anthropomorphizes it? I don't remember what the right word is. But Paul says the creation itself, like us, is longing for everything to be fixed, for everything to be put right. And it too is anticipating, the creation too is anticipating that God will someday show his glory and fix everything. So we're rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, so what does the word hope mean? If the, if the glory of God means the future reality that Jesus is going to return and put everything to right, what does it mean to say we hope for that? Hope means this. In the Bible, it's, it's certainly it's anticipation of the future, like it is now we use the, this is the way we commonly use the word hope, is I hope I get a white cake for my birthday. I don't know if I'm going to get white cake for my birthday, but that would be great if I did. Right? That's what we mean. We're, we're, we're anticipating something that, we, that may or may not happen. We're hoping that something will happen. But sometimes the Bible uses it like that too. But frequently Paul will use hope mixed up with faith, confidence that something is going to happen. And so what you have is you have emotional content, the hope, but you have faith that it's going to happen. And both of those things for Paul are important. To say, I have faith that Jesus is going to return, but you don't really, doesn't really matter to you emotionally. There's something missing from that. Right? To say, I hope that Jesus returns. I hope that God can fix everything. I don't know if he can do it or not. I would like for him to do it, though. That also is missing something. It's got the emotional content. It's got the desire, but it doesn't have the assurance that God is powerful enough and has promised to do that. And when Paul uses the word hope, he mixes both these things together. It's this desire, this passion that God would fix everything with the knowledge that he's going to do it as well. Let me give you another example about hope from the same text we were just looking at, Romans 8, uh, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved, the hope for the future glory. He's, uh, like, like I told you, Romans 5, 1 through 5 functions as a table of contents for Romans 5 through 8. I'm giving you a little taste in Romans 8 of like the meat of what he's saying. For in this hope that God would fix everything... Um, let me find my spot here, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So it's not here yet. So we're hoping for it because it's not here yet. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So these two things are important. This waiting for it with patience because we know it's going to come. But it's definitely anticipating it and longing for it and wanting it to show up. Wanting it to be here. So when Paul says... We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He's saying that it gives us pleasure, it gives us happiness and joy to know that someday God's going to fix everything. Okay, now what does that mean for us this morning? Real quick, what are we going to do with that? This next verse here, verses three and four, the next few verses, verses three and four, 
are going to unpack. What do you do with this rejoicing in the hope of the future glory? Why should it make any difference to us that God's going to come back and return and fix things? Why should that stir up in us joy, that hope? And the answer is this. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We don't rejoice because of our sufferings. Sufferings are a result of evil, whether it's broken relationships or whether it's sickness or whether it's uh, being unemployed or underemployed, whatever it is, sufferings. But we can rejoice in those evil sufferings because, verse 3, we know that suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. what, what, What does this mean? Uh, when you as a Christian suffer, when you as a Christian suffer, in faith, it makes you stronger. And nobody's saying it's fun. You don't ask for this sort of thing. But like if you want to get in shape, one of the ways that you can do this is you can start running, right? And nobody except for uh, a few of you sickos actually likes to run. But, but you do it because it builds up your stamina. You do it because it makes you healthier. It's, it is, it is a form, in my mind, it's a form of suffering. Uh, but you do it because it, it builds endurance, right? Uh, this is what Christian suffering does as well. Uh, frequently we uh, long to get out from underneath Christian suffering. And that's totally appropriate too. It's, again, it would be a weird person who would run and think, I just hope that this run keeps on going on and on forever. No, you really want to be done with it. It serves a function, but you, you, you want to be done with it. And so uh, suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character doesn't mean like, you know, some, that's kind of a vague phrase we, we use with our kids sometimes. You know, like, what do I got to do algebra? Uh, I'm never going to use it. Well, doing algebra builds character. And what we mean is, is I don't know the answer to your question, uh, but it's the law, so you're going to have to do algebra. That's usually what we mean. But what, what, what this means is the character qualities that flow out of endurance. You become a better runner. You start to lose weight your basketball game starts to up a little bit because you've been suffering by running, you've been building endurance, and now you're seeing the fruit. That's what character means. Now you're seeing the payout. So what does this mean? As a Christian, we're suffering in Jesus. Uh, We're praying that God would alleviate the suffering, but we're also rejoicing in the suffering because we know that the suffering produces endurance. It makes us stronger for Christ, and that endurance produces the character qualities which, I'm not even going to get into what those character qualities would look like because it's an infinite, infinite number of character qualities. But what it, here, what it does is it functions as an evidence that it's working. Right? So you're, you, you, know, you want to be better at basketball, but you just can't get up and down the court. You start running, you start building endurance, and now all of a sudden you're getting down the court better. You're playing better defense. You're a little bit quicker. And all of a sudden you're saying, oh, you know what, this is working. That suffering is producing character it's producing i'm a better basketball player that's what christian suffering does and when you start to see that when when i suffer in jesus christ and now all of these godly holy spirit empowered character qualities are starting to flourish in my life it is evidence and confirmation that god is behind this we're going to get to the alternative what's the alternative to god being behind suffering we'll get to that in just a second and what that does paul says is that produces this hope this hope that this suffering is not random I don't just run around randomly. I'm running around for a purpose, to get better in better shape so I can be a better basketball player so that this year we can win the gym championship. This is what's happening, is that we're suffering in Jesus Christ, which produces endurance, which produces evidence that God is at work here. And when we know that God is at work here, 
it produces this hope, this confidence that God has some sort of plan, that God has some sort of design to make my life better, and not just my life, remember, but the life of everybody and all of creation, that God is behind this. Now, what does this mean? There's three things that this biblical hope will accomplish. This knowledge that God is at work, even in my sufferings, on this plan to bring about the new creation. There's three things here. First of all, it, it, it produces a confidence that God is in charge and that suffering is not meaningless. The alternative to suffering in a Christian way is meaningless suffering. This is, honestly, this is one of the main reasons why people don't believe in God. People who don't believe in God will say, I can't believe in a God that would allow senseless, meaningless suffering. I mean, you look at the Holocaust, look at tidal waves, uh, my grandma has cancer. I just can't believe in a God who would let those things happen. That's a totally legitimate thing to say because the Holocaust and tidal waves and cancer are all evils. You know, some of them bigger evils, some of them lesser evils. And that's not even to mention some of the smaller evils. Like I'm not getting along with my brother right now. Or there's somebody at work who's like trying to undermine the work that I'm doing. These are smaller, but they're all evils, right? And there's one way that you can look at that. Without God, that's just sort of random. Random junk happens to you. There's really no answer for it. I, I hate to keep, keep quoting uh, Nietzsche because you guys will think that I, I'm actually reading him more than the Bible. But, but as always, Nietzsche is like to the point and not really trying to sugarcoat anything. So let me quote Nietzsche about suffering. Here's what he says. Now, now Nietzsche's an atheist. Nietzsche, Nietzsche has a, Nietzsche's view of human suffering is that it is inherently random. There's no cause or purpose to it. Here's what he says. Um, um, he says, to not perish from internal distress and doubt. So no, I'm sorry, let, me go, let me give you a, a different quote first. What really raises my indignation against suffering, he says, is not suffering itself. I can deal with pain. I can deal with loneliness. I can deal with being poor or hungry. But what raises my, what raises my indignation is the senselessness of suffering. There's no purpose to it. It just happens to you randomly, and there's no cause. And so for Nietzsche, what does that mean? What, what should you do with suffering then? Suffering, the best way to handle suffering, uh, Nietzsche says, and thus spoke Zarathustra, is what he says, the best way to, thing to do with suffering is to use it to control other people. You have to figure out a way to use suffering to get what you want out of others. Here's a great quote from him. Not great because it's nice. It's not nice, but great because, again, Nietzsche's to the point and doesn't sugarcoat stuff. To not perish from internal distress and doubt when one inflicts great suffering... And here's the cry of suffering. That is true greatness. To inflict suffering on people and not experience the pangs of doubt. That's what true greatness is. That's so for, so for Nietzsche, like, you have to be able to make people suffer and not care. That's when you know that you have become the, the ubermensch, the superman, right? And really, I mean, most of us aren't Nietzsche's. Most of us aren't going to figure out a way to turn suffering into a way to control us most of us are just going to kind of curl up in a ball and say god why would you do this to me i can't believe in you that, that's that's most of our default modes right here what 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 paul is offering is a biblical understanding of suffering and what it does let me give you a different let, let, let me give you the biblical one again just to repeat god is in charge and is working all things again to go back to romans 8 is working all things including our suffering towards this ultimate plan of rescuing us and all creation through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
So my kids and I and Angela, we just uh, finished reading uh, The Hobbit, and Angela and I read it before. Harry read it before, too. But the girls hadn't read it. And if you know anything about Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy in The Hobbit, uh, Tolkien is a devout Christian. The whole thing is about this plan. But um, it's, 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 uh, it's all a reference to this plan of God, the king returning and fixing everything. But it's never explicitly spoken. So Bilbo, the hobbit, gets randomly chosen to go on this like journey of suffering in order to accomplish this great good. And at the end of the story, he's having a final con- conversation with Gandalf, and he's like, like that, that was really like weird. Like I was just minding my own business. I was a nobody, and this happened. And Gandalf says that, to this, so, so Bil- Bil- Bilbo says, it looks like all those stories about things coming right in the end are true. And Gandalf is, says, of course. Like, you were, you were there. You saw this happening, right? Gandalf says to him, of course. And why should they not prove true? Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies just because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck? You don't suppose that everything that's happening to you is just this random, you know, luck, good luck, bad luck, so you, get a, you get a raise, that's kind of good luck, or I'm, I'm a good guy, or bad luck, just bad stuff randomly. You don't imagine that God's not in charge. Right? That's, that sort of confidence and hope can, make, can allow you to suffer with this vision of future glory. It makes sense of your suffering now. Here's the second thing. It creates a boldness towards alleviating suffering. I don't have to like crumple up in the fetal position when I suffer because, you know, like, oh, this is miserable and the universe is out to get me. I can be liberated in suffering to help others because I know that I serve a God who uses suffering to help others. So, I mean, we're all thinking about this coronavirus thing right now, right? And, you know, the default mode is, like, you've got to watch out for you. This is completely random. We don't know why, you know, pandemics happen. It's just completely random. And the only thing that you can do is to ignore everybody else, like get yourself to Walmart, buy as much toilet paper as you can, and hunker down. And so, like, we're, we're running over each other to make sure that I'm okay. But believing that God has a plan, having the joy of the hope of God's future glory, liberates me from understanding. This, I'm not saying that, that, that the coronavirus isn't bad. I really don't know. It could be horrible. I could end up dying in this. But... I'm liberated to serve each other, to serve you guys. There's this, uh, some of you might have seen this recently because it's kind of making, making its rounds on the internet. There's this, in 1527, Luther's in, in Wittenberg and the bubonic plague comes through. Like it's making its way east uh, once again uh, from Asia and it's coming through Europe and it hits Wittenberg and he has a friend named John Hess who writes him this letter and says, is it okay to run? Is it okay to go somewhere else? And Luther writes this really long letter basically saying, don't freak out. You have to take care of yourself, but you also need to do what's right and serve each other. And let me, let me quote you a little bit from it. Um, Luther says this, I will, in the middle of a plague, I will ask God mercifully to protect us. I'm going to pray and ask God to protect us. And then, ch- check this out, then I'll fumigate. I'll help purify the air. I'll give medicine. I'll take medicine. I'll avoid places and people where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perhaps inflict and pollute others and as a result cause their death because of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he'll certainly find me. And I've done what he's expected of me, so I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. However, if my neighbor needs me, I will not avoid that person in place, but will go freely. This is such a God-fearing faith because it's neither brash 
nor foolhardy, and does not tempt God. This is like, I, I, somebody should like print this up on flyers and mail it to everybody, <laughs> right? I mean, this is like the, this is the best way to think of this. Like you're not brash, but you're not scared either. Right? Because you know that God is completely in charge. And, and if, God, if God has a future glory that he's instilled hope for us in our hearts in this future glory, like you're free to not be freaked out about the coronavirus. I'm not saying don't take precautions. I'm saying this is a great opportunity to serve the people in Glen Carbon. It's an unbelievable opportunity to love and to serve. Here's the third thing. Since it's God's ultimate plan to use suffering for our glory, then we right now should live a Christian life in faith and hope. Be happy. Rejoice in the hope of future glory. Let me close, let me, let me, let me close with this one quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from a piece he wrote in 1948 called On Living in an Atomic Age. What do you do with the fear of atomic destruction hanging over your head? Here's what he says. One of the things he says is this. If we're going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking about bombs or the coronavirus. They might break our bodies. A a bomb can break your body. Coronavirus can kill you. He actually says they might break our bodies. An atomic bomb might break our body. A microbe can do that too, he says. But they need not dominate our minds. Why? Because since Jesus died and rose from the dead, we have a sure and certain hope of future glory. Amen.